1: And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today
0: for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com
2: or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
0: Shoppers get it. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours
1: i think the very first thing to 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 remind our listeners is of the truly historic nature of what happened on january 6th since uh the war of 1812 the u.s Capitol has not been attacked if we look from world war ii on to today in modern democracies of course the u.s Capitol has never been attacked but the british parliament has never been attacked The German Bundestag has never been attacked. The French parliament has never been attacked. This is not the usual suspects because uh, the organized right wing militants were really quite a small part of this. If you only had the organized right wing militants, we probably wouldn't have had the storm. We probably wouldn't have been here today. What made the Capitol Hill attack a storm were the 88 percent who were not part of the right wing militias. And that's why we really need to understand what's occurring in the situation.
2: Robert Pape is a renowned professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. He teaches a wildly popular class at Chicago simply called Strategy. Professor Pape also runs the Chicago Project on Security and Threats a center affiliated with a university that does original research on the threats facing our country. Bob has been on our show before, and today he joins us to talk about some fascinating new research from his center on the insurrection at the Capitol. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
0: Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Bob, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show again.
1: Uh, Thanks, Michael. Uh, This is just always wonderful to be on with you.
2: So before we dig into our topic, I mentioned in the introduction when I was sharing your biography with our listeners that you teach a very popular class at UChicago called Strategy. And I wanted to ask you, what is it that you do in that class?
1: Uh, What I do in strategy is I focus on uh, American grand strategy from 1945 all the way through to the present day. Uh, that, and I especially focus within American Grand Strategy on uh, the threats that face America and how those threats have changed uh, over that grant long period of time. I focus on the tools that we use. Uh, so, of course, I've studied air power for a long period of time, economic sanctions for a long period of time, but also nuclear deterrence. And I talk about how the emphasis in American Grand Strategy has changed. Uh, across regions of the world during that period of time. So that students who come out of this are really well prepared for going into an academic career where they can delve into very specific issues and have a broader context for work as a PhD student. They're very, really well prepared for going into government service because, again, they, um, as they go into government service for today and the decades going forward, it's very helpful to have that broad context uh, in the past, and increasingly for folks who go into business, because uh, businesses uh, deal with a lot of uh, political risk issues. And so increasingly, folks in business are interested in taking strategy.
2: Are there any kind of key takeaways from the class, you know, key
1: themes? Uh, The key theme is that as much as structural pressures matter, strategic choice is still crucial. It is very important to know um, how well uh, specific strategies do sort of the base rate of how well how successful they are. Uh, because it matters not just what are the constellation of political forces, economic forces, and social forces that come into a problem, but the choice of strategy. And so there are just simply some strategies um, which outperform other strategies, not in every single case, but in most cases. And it's helpful to see that over time so that you know, for instance, that if you're going to adopt economic sanctions as a tool to put pressure on, say, the government of Venezuela to change its behavior vis-a-vis an opposition leader, that's highly unlikely to work it doesn't mean you can't use it at all. It just means you have to understand the odds of success uh, here are sort of in the 5% range. And that means you need to be prepared with backup strategies as you lead with that uh, very uh, low probability of success strategy. And that gives students then a real uh, sense coming out of what are not just the arrows, not just the tools we have in our toolbox, but how successful they are so that they can put together packages of tools. Because as we know, when things go belly up and don't succeed, you can get some pretty big disasters. Like in the case of, say, Kosovo, we did a strategic bombing campaign in March uh, 1999, supposed to only last three days, hit 51 targets in and around uh, Belgrade. And what happened? We had no backup plan. And so when Milosevic launched his army against the Kosovar civilians, uh, he killed thousands, thousands pushed a million people out of the country, and we could do nothing to stop that because we hadn't prepared with backup plans. And it took us three months to figure that situation out. So this is the kind of issue that's really helpful, I think, for, again, uh, academics, uh, for uh, folks going into government, and for folks in the private sector.
2: So, Bob, let's, let's talk about the research you've done on the insurrection at the Capitol But first, remind us of of what CPOST is, the organization that actually did the research.
1: That's right. So the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats uh, is a research center that I founded in 2004. Uh, Today, it has six full-time staff members. Uh, uh, Half of those have PhDs. Some have PhDs as long ago as eight years. And in addition to that, we have 40 undergraduate and graduate student researchers who work part-time, say 12 hours a week or 15 hours a week. Uh, we have some of the best and the brightest at the University of Chicago, which is already saying quite a bit because the University of Chicago uh, is a highly selective school. And so what we have at the University of Chicago with Post is uh, a very uh, relatively small army uh, who can uh, then uh, have a lot of experience in areas of political violence, because that's what I've been doing for the last 17 years, and apply that to problems as they come up. So in this particular case, I um, uh, started to prioritize American political violence starting in April. Uh, I did that because as the government, federal government dropped the ball on COVID, I knew there would be mass deaths in the United States. uh, And that unfortunately has come to be. Um, But with that, I uh, believe there would be a dramatic loss of social trust that could lead Mm. to Uh, New kinds of political violence in our country. So um, we started this in April. And so we were uh, poised to do major work on the George Floyd protests that kicked off starting in the summer, even though we had no idea in April it would be the George Floyd protests. And so there's a lot of work on that, Michael, we won't talk about today, um, but has been submitted to academic journals and so forth. Um, And then what that meant is, as we were doing that work, um, the Capitol Hill insurrection occurred. So we were able to, within just a few days vector the team to um, the arrests and all the records of the arrests. And this is something that we've done at post really for years. We did this with the ISIS indictees in the United States. So we've done, I've started doing this in 2005 with my book on suicide terrorism, where I did a large demographic study of suicide terrorists. So, so we were able to very quickly vector. And so we then produced the first uh, a systematic study of the demographics and political geography of the Capitol Hill insurrectionists.
2: Okay, Bob, let's get to the specifics. So on January 6th, a mob of 800 people stormed the Capitol in what I believe was an act of domestic terrorism and an act of treason. The media was very quick to blame far right groups for the insurrection. Um, but you at Seapost decided to actually look at the facts, and you found some very interesting things. Can you tell us what you did, and can you walk us through those findings?
1: Absolutely, Michael. Uh, I think the very first thing to, to, to remind our listeners is of the truly historic nature of what happened on January 6th. Um, since uh, the War of 1812, the U.S. Capitol has not been attacked. If we look from World War II on to today in modern democracies, of course, the U.S. Capitol has never been attacked, but the British Parliament has never been attacked. The German Bundestag has never been attacked. The French Parliament has never been attacked. The Israeli Knesset was attacked with something like a mob, a smaller mob, in 1952. If we look at the democracies that have had their parliaments attacked, Sri Lanka, 1987, Russia, 1993, India, 2001, Chechnya, 2010, Venezuela, 2017. So suddenly, we're in a very different category, Michael, than we have. And this is a truly historic event that we have just witnessed. Now, it's very important to know who was involved in storming the capital. If we're going to build viable solutions for America, it's very important to know the who was involved in this action. We can't just make quick uh, estimates or knee-jerk assumptions. And we're fortunate in this case because the democracy we live in requires that for every individual who's arrested, there are public records. Um, Mm -hmm. And that allows us at CPOST to be able, as long as we have a large research team, Uh, who has familiarity with court documents, to be able to quickly collect and analyze every court document related to every person arrested for breaking into the U.S. Capitol or the Capitol grounds on January 6th. That number today is uh, 290. Uh, That's a very large number of people so it's um, there is no such thing as a perfect analysis, Michael, but being able to analyze the demographics of the 290 uh, and to do it up to the day. So we are not like three weeks out of date or two months out of date. Uh, we're up to date to the day. And that really allows us to be able to see who stormed the Capitol.
2: And that's a very, that's a very good sample size, particularly when you're talking about a an overall population of uh, you know, about 800 people. So 290 is, is, is incredibly representative.
1: So now what do we find? What we find is we are dealing with here not merely a mix of right-wing organizations, but a broader mass movement with violence at its core. This is fundamentally a political movement, one that's not only centered in red parts of the country, but also consists of pro-Trump supporters who are in the political minority in many places. Now, I want to underscore that this is a political movement In the court documents, there are interviews with the FBI that the uh, uh, individuals gave to the FBI, which they're held accountable for, and also other interviews where there are dozens and dozens of statements by the individuals about their motives. And what's the absolute number one motive? In fact, there's hardly another motive given the motive for storming the Capitol was to follow Donald Trump's uh, uh, orders, his request to stop the certification of the election for uh, Joseph Biden. Uh, that was the absolute direct intent of um, uh, the individuals who stormed the Capitol. And there's really no competing motives here to really even debate. It's, in some cases, we could talk about debates. That's not the case. Further, it's important to underscore that this wasn't a collective, act of collective violence. Uh, normally, when we see uh, right-wing violence in our country, what we have witnessed is an act of an individual uh, who's racially motivated or ideologically motivated or ethnically motivated to attack another individual or a very small group to attack another either individual or small group. That's not what happened here. What happened here is we saw 800, and uh, keep in mind, that's as many as probably could get in the Capitol at that point in time. There were thousands uh, behind them um, who stormed the Capitol. This was an act of collective political violence that's very different than we have seen before. So, The first thing we did when we started to analyze the data, Michael, is we wanted to know where did the insurrectionists come from? And what we discovered is because we have their residences in the court documents, is that these 290 have come from 42 states in the United States. That's really stunning. Um, It's, Rare to have people travel from across the country to come to a rally in Washington. We have lots of rallies in Washington. And why do I say this with such confidence? Because we also studied the pro-Trump rallies in Washington, D.C. that occurred on November 12th and December 14th. And we studied the arrests that occurred there. And we know that those individuals uh, here, over half of them came from simply Washington, D.C., and Maryland. And they came, in. if we include both rallies, from a total of 17 states, not 42. So this really is quite a striking uh, national, beginnings of a national movement. Uh, second thing we noticed right away is uh, over half, 54%, come from counties that Biden won. Um, that's very striking. That's Most people think uh, that the insurrectionists would come from the reddest parts of America. That's right. uh, true for 46%. So it's not, not true at all. But 54% are coming from large urban areas that went easily for Biden, like Dallas County. So Dallas went 65% for Biden. Um, and in fact, uh, we tend not to even study Dallas politically because it's so easy to put in the in, in the democratic uh, 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 camp but that just because it went sixty five percent for Biden, uh, we tend to miss that that means it's three hundred thousand people still voted for Trump. Dallas sent four insurrectionists, one of the largest. Where else did they come from? San francisco, l a and within l a Beverly Hills. Uh, Chicago. These are not (laughs) viewed as the Trump strongholds. So it's terribly important to see um, that we already are learning that uh, it is, to be sure, these are uh, pro-Trump individuals. Uh, The biggest predictor of where they're coming from is simply the largest quantity of votes, not the reddest parts of the country for Trump.
2: So it sounds like it sounds like the, the the bottom line of these two points, 42 states, Biden counties, as well as Trump counties, is, is that this thing is broad-based.
1: It, it broad-based into the mainstream. So then the second question we asked is, how does this compare to insurrectionists from the insurrectionists to the normal uh, past right-wing extremists? Well, uh, we had just done a study. I I mentioned it earlier in your program, Michael. In April, we started to study American political violence, and the first thing we did was we studied uh, the 108 individuals that the FBI uh, arrested for deadly violence uh, in their REMV, it's called, which is their racially, ethnically motivated violent extremists, and this was from 2015 to 2020. Um, And so we were able to use that as a baseline to compare the demographics of the insurrectionists on January 6th. And what do we find? We find um, a very different demographic profile. Now, first, where are they similar? Uh, They're similar in that both of these uh, uh, groups are overwhelmingly white, 94% white. Both are overwhelmingly male. Uh, the past right-wing ins- uh, uh, extremists from 2015 to 20, um 80, 94% male. The Capitol Hill insurrectionists, 86% male. But that's pretty much where the similarities stop. Uh, age is one of the key things that jumps right out at you.
2: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Bob Pate. Man, that
1: sunset is
2: okay, Bob, we were talking about what's different about these guys
1: from a demographic profile. And one of the first things we noticed right off the bat was age, Michael. Over two-thirds of the Capitol Hill insurrectionists are over the age of 34, many on their 40s, 50s. And this is very different than what we've seen in the past with political, uh, with violent extremists. So that group of right wing extremists that the FBI arrested for deadly violence 2015 to 20, two thirds were under the age of 34. And that's very Mm -hmm. important when you start to think about solutions. So with past right-wing extremists, say skinheads or the Proud Boys, normally what you think about as a solution is they grow up and you get them married and Mm -hmm. they have kids and they have extra responsibilities. Well, the capital insurrectionists, that's already the case, you see. So so right off the bat, this means some normal CVE solutions here just are non-starters. Second thing we noticed um, was how few were unemployed compared to the normal uh, large amounts of unemployed we usually see in right-wing extremists. In the Capitol Hill um, arrests, only 9% are unemployed. And that compares to 25% of the right-wing extremists um, from 2015 uh, to 2020. Drilling a little bit more into economic issues, One of the other striking things about the Capitol Hill insurrectionists is 11% are business owners. They're CEOs. Uh, They own various shops and businesses. Another um, 30% are white-collar, have white-collar occupations. They're doctors, they're attorneys, they're architects. Uh, one's a Google field operations specialist. Um, um, these are, this is, this is so striking, Michael, because when I've done my other studies of the demographics of, of, of violent extremists, we don't have a category for business owner. <laughs> this is right, very, very right. unusual. Um, and that what this means also is, see, one of the other tools we often use to manage our C- in CVE is let's get them a job. Well, okay, if they're already doctors, lawyers, and architects, uh, how much more are we going to employ them? <laughs> you see, this this right away shows that, again, our normal um, bag of tools here is is going to be very, uh, very limited.
2: You know, the business, the the business owner thing is fascinating, right? Because, you know, not only do they have a stake, right, in the current society that they're protesting against, but they're also influencing large numbers of other people who work for them.
1: Uh, exactly right. And the more you drill into the, this, so, so keep in mind, I, we're only still hitting the tip of the, the top of the iceberg here, Michael, with, even with your wonderful w- long show. Uh, if we drill into gender, here it turns out uh the women uh who are uh there's still only you know a small percentage here um, 14% of the capital insurrectionists but 17% of them are business owners. They're even more likely to be business owners in white collar um, here, which is even more perplexing. So so it's just the more you get into this, the more you see this is a very different set of uh, uh, profile than we're used to seeing. Now, perhaps the most striking finding though of all that we found um, is that only 12% are coming from Militant uh, gangs and militias like the Proud Boys. Uh, To be sure, uh, 37 are Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or 3%ers. There's no doubt 37 are, but that's 37 out of 290, you see. So uh, what's very striking is nearly 90% are not affiliated. With organized militant groups. Now, that, if we compare it to the usual uh, REMV, the usual, uh, again, racially, ethnically motivated, think of them as the usual white supremacists, uh, half of the usual white supremacists um, are affiliated with militant groups like the Proud Boys. So overall, Michael, you're seeing uh, a big reach into the mainstream uh this is not the usual suspects here, so just rounding up the usual suspects. I'm not yeah. saying that we shouldn't go after people who were who who were going into the capitol uh here you know I'm not saying take the pedal off the metal. what I'm saying is we can't be confident that's going to Uh, suffice because uh, the organized right-wing militants were really quite a small part of this. If you only had the organized right-wing militants, we probably wouldn't have had the storm. We probably wouldn't have been here today. What made the Capitol Hill um, attack a storm were the 88% who were not part of the right-wing militias, and that's why we really need to understand what's occurring um, in the situation. So, Bob,
2: what's the what's the bottom line of these findings to you? What do they what do they mean? What do they suggest about the problem we're facing? How do you answer that question?
1: The, the bottom line, Michael, is that we are facing a new phenomenon of collective political violence that is not reducible to simply a slightly larger version of what we've been dealing with for the last 5, 10, or 30 years. This is a new phenomenon. It's a mass movement that hasn't fully congealed, but it is congealing, And left to its own devices, I'm afraid that we should be expecting it will congeal further. And why do I say that? It's because key accelerants of that congealing are already present. First, the movement has a leader in Donald Trump with demonstrated support for extra legal behavior. Second, Mm -hmm. the movement has mass grievances believed by many millions of people in the form of the, of the steel that the election was stolen and that President Biden is not, in fact, the legitimate president and that we are now living under an illegitimate uh, government. Third, we have a focal point of that now of January 6th itself, which as a focal point has brought thousands of Um, uh, people, um, uh, let's call them would-be extremists, uh, to Washington, D.C., participated in this event to varying degrees, have done things like swapped cell phone numbers. They're able to congeal in numerous small groups. It's going to be very difficult to track as they move on to WhatsApp and other encrypted platforms. Um, and this is the kind of social networking we know, uh, from protest to protest to protest can lead to violence. Why do I say that? The plot against Governor Whitmer, which we know quite a deal about because of the 20 page indictment by, um, by the FBI when they, um, when they arrested the 13 who were involved that plot began by individuals who didn't know each other starting to meet at anti-lockdown rallies in Michigan in April. And two months later, starting in June, they started weekly face-to-face meetings with small, separate, overlapping clusters of the 13. And then over the summer, that led to uh, forming an IED, testing the IED to see if it's going to go off on time, uh, reconnaissance of Governor Whitmer's uh, cabins and so forth, so that they could uh, kidnap her and then plans to have a trial and then execute her. So, so the, uh, this was not a sort of uh kind of a drawing board. This was, this, this happened as you, uh, basically because the anti-lockdown rallies in Michigan in April were a focal point of that. Well, think about this is uh, January 6th is like those anti-lockdown rallies on steroids. Further... Mm-hmm. Further, they go down in the memory of the movement. So um, January 6th is already being referred to as the new independence day for our country by the believers in the movement. Um, And what is that akin to? That's akin to the Boston Tea Party. So in 1773, there was a focal point event in the United States called the Boston Tea Party. It only involved a few dozen individuals uh, here. Some of them dressed up as Indians, you know, kind of laughable. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep, yep. Uh, but that became the snowball uh, mythical event <laughs> that, w- that very much helped mobilization for what became uh, the American Revolution three years later. So I'm not telling you we're heading toward the revolution. OK, I'm not telling you, certainly not not yet. What I'm telling you is we need to be aware That this is a uh, what we're seeing is the early stages of a broad based mass political movement with collective violence at its core. And if left to its own, there are risks of it congealing and going further.
2: So, Bob, what do we do about all this?
1: So the first thing we need to recognize is that we've already have substantial findings. We have a pretty good idea of what's going on even now. We now know that normal pro-Trump activists join with far-right extremists to form a new kind of mass political violent movement. Very important. So the next stage is to thicken that understanding so that our diagnosis of the drivers, the size and potential, potential size, I should say, and nature of this movement can lead to truly viable solutions that can work for America. So at Seapost, we're already underway to build this thrust uh, to thicken our understanding. This requires no, this isn't just an Intel problem, uh, Michael, where if only we had the cell phones and we could eavesdrop on the cell phones. Um, I'm not saying that's not, the FBI shouldn't do stuff like that, but I'm, I'm not, I'm saying that this is an understanding problem. This is a problem mm-hmm. where we need sociologists, political scientists like myself, economists. We need other uh, we need other, we need to study as we do at c post we, we do uh, neuroscience studies of um, militant propaganda uh, by other uh, by Islamic groups. We need to understand. Uh, the neuroscience of how propaganda is working uh, here it, with uh, extremists in our own co- in our own country, we need to apply these broad based tools of social science and natural science uh, so that we 're not just left um, sort of uh, kind of feeling our way and wondering well you know uh, was this mode of uh, broad this, this social trend broadly important or not we have the best social scientists in the world right now, they're not vectored much on American political violence. Um, and that's been true for decades. Well, now it's the time to change that.
2: And your point is, if we don't understand it, we're never going to be able to make the right policy choices to deal with it.
1: Uh, yes, yes, Michael. A good example of this um, for me is after 9-11, Um, We all wanted to know what causes a suicide bomber. And much like today, people are saying, oh, my gosh, you can't talk them out of it. So, you know, I guess we're just going to have to go in and use force. Right. Well, I'm not saying force today, but that was the thinking after 9-11. That, what did that lead to? That led to the invasion and occupation of Iraq, because I believe our political leadership genuinely believed that Islamic fundamentalism was the only driver of suicide uh, terrorism. And therefore, we should go in and transform these societies to get rid of that evil seed of Islamic fundamentalism. Well, what we missed was that there's multiple motives driving suicide bombers. Um, And in fact, uh, many are nationalists. Uh, Many are, in fact, secular nationalists. So if you invade and conquer a country, you can touch off the largest suicide terrorist campaign in modern times, which is what I said (laughs) we would do. I said this to Paul Wolfowitz. (laughs) Okay, Um, uh, we did it anyway. And then afterwards, it was the the Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld Pentagon that started Seapost because they were really interested in my studies about the various motives of the suicide bombers. And how did that matter in the CIA? Well, in 2006, uh, the CIA produced an NIE on Iraq that for the first time split the motives of suicide bombers in Iraq. They said there were religious and nationalist motives. That laid the groundwork for the Anbar awakening. That laid the groundwork to take the risk Uh, because it was very, it was, was, you know, it wasn't clear it was going to work that we could uh, split um, AQI and split off the tribes from AQI uh, using some economic and political tools, which turned out to work tremendously and was one of the biggest success stories we had in uh, 2007 and eight uh, here um, in stopping the civil war and the suicide bombing uh, uh, in Iraq at the time.
2: Bob, you, You mentioned a couple of times the word congeal, that if we don't deal with this uh, correctly, the movement will congeal. What do you mean by congeal? Uh,
1: What I mean by that is um, uh, you will have more and more extremists move from being passive supporters of this movement to being willing to be active supporters and even uh, willing to participate in violence for the movement so as um, as we 've seen in studying other um, uh, militant groups and circumstances around the world, a militant group isn 't a single thing. A militant group occurs along a spectrum of support, and the uh, the situation becomes more congealed and more violent as you have more move from being passive or you can think of it as loose or only partly supporters of um, uh, of the movement uh, to becoming more actively involved here, and uh, simply following also the direction um, of the leader and so what we are seeing on January sixth is quite a bit of direction um, following the leader so if this were if we were uh, you know sort of doing studies of anywhere else in the world, uh, we would notice that um President Trump's speech here um, was uh, the triggering event that led the people that he had called to the Capitol to go and 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 be quote strong—that is, storm the Capitol—to go after the quote weak Republicans like Mike Pence to specifically punish them for disobeying the movement. Um, then afterwards, he called them off. He did call them off. They obeyed. They when right, he said right. down. They stood down within minutes. So um, the uh, the fact is, this is quite a bit, especially when he told them to stand down. Um, this is quite a bit of of control on the part of the leader. So you can see already. That there's been a fair bit of congealing here in terms of following the leader. The second thing I'm worried about is uh, independent of the leader. The uh, the whole the whole way social networking works here in the modern world, where when you have protests, you can tap one phone to another to transfer contact information within a second, and that allows for then follow up and uh, and further uh, networking afterwards. It's extremely difficult to track. I we work with uh, A social media company here. This is this is not going to be so easy to track uh, here, especially as things gone encrypted.
2: Yeah. So 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 if this congeals, does that make it easier for far right extremist groups to recruit people, um, or not? How how Uh, do you think that plays?
1: For existing groups to recruit people, uh, Michael. Um, And since the um, the insurrectionists who came to uh, who stormed the Capitol have come from forty two states. Many of them are going to be, you know, within an hour's drive of a militant group. I mean, a, a militant far-right extremist group. That, that, that will be pretty, you know, that's going to be common. But there's even more the possibility that they'll start to form um, new uh, uh, organizations, which are not well-known, uh, don't have easy insignia to track. Um, mm-hmm. So it's um, uh, once you start to uh, congeal a movement under surveillance... Now we we shouldn't be expecting they're just going to tip their hands so easily, and we we know that many of the uh, people uh, who went to uh, Washington have stripped their social media since going to washington so uh, one of the reasons why you're not seeing lots of uh, stories by journalists about all the social media of the uh, Capitol Hill insurrectionists or those who came to Washington is because they destroyed it um, so they they already understand they're under, uh, they're under uh, tremendous surveillance here. And so that's going to make it very difficult to use like uh, these intelligence tools uh, to be able to track the congealing of the movement. That's why it's important to try to get to the deeper political, economic, and social roots of the movement uh, here, to really start to understand more about the grievances uh, here um, and also to what we can uh, on the organizational congealing at the same time so i 'm not saying we don 't study the organizational congealing i 'm saying that given the environment we 're in today and the crucial the, the fact that um, the leader is uh, politically active uh, gotten even more legitimacy now because of the way the trial and the Senate went. Uh, we just saw tremendous support here, not just for the leader as an individual, but also for the belief that is the oxygen that helped to fuel this, which is that the, uh, the election was stolen and that he is the legitimate president of the United States. Um, these, are, th- these, are really, th- these are happening right in front of us. And so that's why I think it's so important to move further uh, in understanding the drivers of this movement.
2: So, Bob, um, we have run out of time, but this has been a fascinating discussion and in many ways deeply worrying. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today.
1: And thank you, Michael. Um, uh, without, with, with, I don't know what we would do without shows like this. We need more shows like this. Thank you, Michael.
2: That was Professor Bob Pape. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of
0: Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio.